Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Kareem. I am your host, Kareem Sirajuddin. Today we have a very profound show. Sister Zara Ferris joins me today. She is currently working on her first book called Women's Rights Without Feminism. She is a graduate in Arabic and Islamic studies from SOAS University, which stands for School of Oriental and African Studies. She's also lived a year in Egypt to study Arabic. She is now a researcher, author, and international speaker for the Muslim Debate Initiative. She has done some really interesting work. Um, She's had a few TV and radio appearances, including um, Islam Channel and BBC Radio. She's debated feminism with the former Green Party leader, Natalie Bennett, journalist Julie Bindel, academic Ziba Mir Husseini, and Marina Mahathir, daughter of the former Malaysian Prime Minister. She also had debated the House believes Sharia is fairer than English law with an English law judge and QC, and Zara and her colleague won the motion on vote change. Today's show is a real powerful primer, uh, especially for me, on just learning more about what is going on in the landscape of feminism and Muslim women. And um, I've been following her work for for a bit now. And so I was really excited to finally get her on the show and and share her knowledge. And I just let her, you know, school me basically and educate me. And it was great. Um, She did share a lot of fascinating insights. And uh, I plan to have her on again this year, inshallah. Definitely, if you'd like to submit some questions, check out patreon.com slash coffee with Kareem. Become a patron today so that you can submit questions to Sister Zara Ferris in the future. I'm also going to be scheduled for speaking again with Dr. Muhammad Rilan. He was the neuroscientist on the episode Yin and Yang. Um, we are scheduled as well for this year, bi'ithnillah, as well as Dr. Shadi El-Masri. Um, an imam in New Jersey who also has the Safina podcast. Uh, check that out if you have the chance. So just to ask questions to guests like these and more to come, go to the link patreon.com slash coffee with Kareem in this show. It's also linked in every single show. You'll find it in the description. Click on that today and join our community and start getting more involved. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. Help support this show. Thanks again for tuning in to the Coffee with Kareem podcast. I have today Sister Zara Ferris calling in from the UK. Sister Zara, thank you so much for being on the show today. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. So I'd love to hear more about this book, Women's Rights Without Feminism. Now, obviously, we live in interesting times, as as every century would say. But um, this this particular era that we're in, at least I've noticed in my lifetime, there's been a lot of shifts and um deconstruction, if you will, of what it means uh, to have genders, to have sexuality, to have rights. And, you know, I almost get the sense sometimes that uh, some people I know or interact with, they almost feel like this fatigue around all this feminism these days. It's like, uh, you know, all right, you know, how much more do we have to be criticized or scrutinized or put down? And now clearly feminism didn't come out of a vacuum. Um, there, There are some, you know, uh, important intentions or or objectives to the cause, but uh, it also seems like it's I don't know I, I feel like it's almost becoming very messy. Like I almost 
don't know, you know, I want to, of course, from a, as a Muslim believer, I want to support equality and equity between human beings and certainly men and women. Um, I don't feel like Islam goes against any of that. But then at the same time, you just get this whole spectrum of what it means to be a feminist. And if you're not, then you're in some other camp. So I'd love to hear more about why you chose this title, Women's Rights Without Feminism, because for many, that would sound kind of you know, counterintuitive or or against logic, so to speak. So, why don't you tell us more about that? Sure. So, that um, that phenomenon or that questioning that aren't these two the same thing is exactly what I want to question and what I want to put out there, which is the fact that we should be asking this question. And the reason for this is uh, because essentially feminism is one approach to the matter of women's rights, but it is just one. So. Another way of putting it, for example, is it is what capitalism or communism, for example, are to economics. So economics is about, you know, the distribution of resources and capitalism and communism each have their own ideologies, their own worldviews, their own origin stories. Um, and, you know, they also didn't arise out of a vacuum. You know, they have their own uh, bases um, for resource distribution. Uh, similarly, feminism has been one approach to the matter of women's rights, and Islam provides a completely different one. And <clears throat> I feel like a lot of the, from what I have observed, a lot of the angst um, that is generated over this issue is when we do see them as synonymous, when we see feminism and Islam as being the same thing. You know, they have a different cause. Um, C-O-R-E-S, <laughs> they have different uh, core uh, beliefs or different core establishments or different drivers behind them. Um, so by way of one example, um, and just to also caveat this, um, when we talk about feminism and, you know, if we point out any flaws or anything like this or we criticise it or critique it, this is not to deny the fact that, you know, we are in dire need of rehabilitation as a community. We are in dire need of reviving, um, you know, the wisdoms and the practices of Islam in our community. Very often, you know, the lack of implementation of women's rights, whether it's in, you know, Muslim communities living in Western countries or whether it's in the Muslim world and, and it happens, it's often a glaring piece of evidence, you know, that society overall isn't functioning, uh, you know, according to Islamic principles. It's in fact a symptom of, you know, a much deeper problem. Um, because if all of those uh, functions and, the, you know, the infrastructure and the balance was there, a lot of the injustices that we are experiencing wouldn't occur. Um, so it, it is very much a holistic issue. It, it's, you know, it's broader than just you know, in a vacuum that only women's rights are being denied. Um, but the difference, one of the pri one of the primary differences um, between the, you know, feminism's historically um, and present day approach to the matter of women's rights and Islam's approach is that um, feminism tends to be based on the dogma of individualism. Um, so the idea that, uh, you know, each human being is in a sense, nothing more than an individual. And the primary purpose is to exist as an individual. And the primary purpose of the way that you live is to maximize your autonomy to do, you know, what you, um, what you want to do. 
Um, conversely, and, and, you know, obviously we know that humans aren't merely individuals. Uh, humans on every level are, you know, are desperate um, for social interaction. I don't mean desperate in a pitiful sense. I mean desperate in a very primal and, and necessary sense. Right. We're, we're right, social males. You know, and, and, and we're defined um, to some extent by society, by culture, by parents, by genetics, you know, the languages that we're taught. Um, if we think about the fact that no human being can even learn language um, without depending on another human being, um, you know, we are we are inherently dependent on one another so you know for example solitary confinement therefore is one of the most inhumane punishments that you know yeah people can conceive um now given the fact that you know we are not you know merely individuals like cells in the body um islam's approach is different so it's not about maximizing the autonomy um for the individual um and often doing that maximizing that autonomy or giving the individual almost the delusion that you know liberation means liberating oneself from all of these influences is actually really misleading it's not possible to do that and it ends up orphaning us from our higher purpose and often we end up therefore vulnerable to you know oppression by those who happen to be stronger in you know in society at the time um on the other hand we find that you know islam it it and the, the term liberate is, is, again, questionable, but it does liberate us from this sort of from this sort of um, enslavement to causality because it gives us, you know, the creator is the one to whom, you know, we must, uh, you know, maximize our autonomy to serve. Right. I mean, that is what for being a Muslim um, it gives us a, a purpose that, you know, that is higher than that, you know, than that um, focusing on just the self. Right. So if I'm understanding you correctly, just so I can summarize here, um, yeah. Islam obviously has its own philosophical paradigm, if you will, that launches us into uh, many approaches or, or different ways of, of handling the human condition. And feminism, as you described, is also an approach, um, but it's generated by you know, individuals, and sometimes it's too individual-centric, if you will, and that can cause um, more harm than than good, because as you're describing here, humans are social creatures. There, I, I've always said this, uh, you know, we can't live under this illusion that, oh, I'm an independent man or woman or whatever. In reality, as you said, we're all completely dependent and interconnected to everything else around us, right? It, there is no such thing as absolute independence. This is an illusion. Um, and so already you have, you know, if you have an Islamic paradigm or a feminist paradigm or a capitalist paradigm, whatever school of thought you're working through, there's already going to be a different way of defining our terms of, you know, developing practical solutions and uh, values based on the philosophical paradigm that we're working with. And so if feminism is coming from a place that isn't originated in what we would consider a higher divine source, then already there can be some concerns there is that kind of what you're trying to to exemplify here right that that's exactly it um and i guess simply speaking you could say that um feminism is an ideology that i suppose makes the female individual rather than the male individual uh, the arbiter in working out what is good and and what is you know and what is good for women um in islam on the other hand we make god the arbiter and the individual is merely the agent uh, in that and those are the two different paradigms. And 
a lot of, as, and I suppose this goes back to your original question, a lot of the angst arises when we imagine that those two are the same. And, you know, it's like looking through one lens and then applying a solution through a different lens entirely. Um, it's going to be incoherent and it's going to result in a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the, I suppose, the the incoherent outcomes that we are experiencing so there's there's a, a pretty a broad spectrum here, at least from my observations um, of, of this phenomena and how the Muslim community has been interacting with it. Maybe it's safe to say, you know, there's almost like three camps. There's the camp that's saying, hey, let's revive and return to the Islamic tradition as it is. Part of the problem we have, you know, and I've I've witnessed this, of course, there's oppressive realities towards men and women in some Muslim families and certain um, notions that are embedded in our cultures. And there is, of course, always this uh, distance between what does the message of Islam really say and then what is being expressed through a political, cultural structure that we happen to be a part of, even though it might be a Muslim one, right? So you have, of course, the first camp of kind of reconciling all of this is well, this is really about us finding our own answers within our tradition. And part of the reason why we think there isn't answers or solutions is because we're ignorant ourselves of our own tradition. Uh, and this is a, a, an important uh, obligation on any sincere believer to seek that knowledge within the tradition and be able to reconcile some of these, you know, hard problems of modernity and gender, if you will. On the other hand, you have people that say, no, let's actually change the religious tradition to fit whatever zeitgeist, you know, constructs of the time we are very comfortable with or we really like. Uh, and this, of course, can re can result in changing the narrative of our religion. Uh, and then, of course, there are the people who would say, maybe the third camp of, okay, let's keep Islam as it is, but we have to, quote unquote, reform it, which could also include kind of some editing or coming up with new ways of interpreting constructs or, you know, principles in Islam that has really never been done before in the last 1400 years. Would you say that's a fair assessment of perhaps the three reactionary camps to the phenomena of political feminism, at least in the, in the Western Muslim world? What are your thoughts? Right. I mean, there is, there are definitely different camps, um, just as there are in, you know, in Western secular feminism. And I suppose the first one that I would flag, even before those who, who speak about, and maybe this is, is the same as those who call for Islamic revival, um, there are those who occasionally innocently use the term, you know, um, feminist or feminism. Um, and again, it just imagining that it merely means women's rights and it doesn't have, you know, the colonial and political baggage that it really carries. Um, but there are those who, who may use the term knowing that it has a social currency. So, um, you know, using the term feminism in, you know, in the States or in the UK and knowing that it garners uh, support from outside of the community, often against their community. And, you know, the reality is it's not it doesn't really get the job done anyway. Um, so within that uh, set of, of of categories, you know, it might be helpful also for me to just mention whether, you know, um, it's actually effective or not. And um, so I suppose with uh, the first 
camp, those who call for Islamic revival and and may innocently use the term, you know, Islamic feminism, thinking that they are simply drawing attention to a particular area that needs to, you know, that needs to have our attention. Unfortunately, using the term um, doesn't really get the job done. It ends up putting people off. So, um, you know, for example, we have issues where Muslim women want, um, you know, more access to um, to the masjid, to the mosques, and, you know, rightfully so, because, you know, Islamically, this cannot be prohibited, as the Prophet, peace be upon him, um, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, said, do not prevent the women from going um, to the masjid. And, you know, it's up to them whether they go or not. Um, so for some uh, sisters, driving this cause under the banner of feminism ends up backfiring. Uh, whereas they had just wanted to revive the prophetic model um, and did this under the language of Islam and using the, you know, the labels of Islam and defining uh, the act of prohibiting women as being, you know, something that was, you know, not what the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam allowed, um, which would garner much more uh, understanding and much more support. Unfortunately, using the term feminism and the language of feminism, you know, like terms like misogyny, which are so loaded and require a lot of time to understand what this really means, uh, it ends up putting people off and, and getting their backs up. So even in that first camp where it's used innocently, unfortunately, it has that effect. And then you go on to the, you know, the second camp, um, you know, those who may want to change, you know, certain aspects of the tradition um, and it's actually there is a strong overlap, perhaps, between that and the third camp that you mentioned, which is where they want to redefine what Islam is to reform it altogether. And again, now, in, in OK, so in the first camp, the word feminism was being used for currency. Right now, in, in the second aspect the word Islam is used for social currency. So you have um, those who may, you know, there are, there are so many uh, academics and writers, Aisha Chowdhury, Amna Wadud, Fatima Manisi, Leila Ahmed, you know, the list is endless, Keisha Ali, go on and on and on, of those who under the title Islamic feminism will claim that, you know, they're trying to revive Islam and understand what Islam really was in the first place you know, according to, according to them. But in actual fact, they will readily admit that their projects are not about doing that. And when we look at their text, they will readily, you know, state directly that their work is about reconciling and, you know, combining, uh, you know, contemporary ethics or secular, you know, secular beliefs with Islam. And so in that sense, the term Islam, Islamic feminism, is then being used to garner social currency amongst Muslims. So under the guise of the term Islam, it's, you know, sort of a backdoor to reformation. Um, so this, this term feminism, for this reason, uh, is best avoided altogether. <laughs> let, let, uh, me, let me ask you this, Sister Zara, because I, I wanted to ask you, why don't you define for us feminism from your understanding? Like, what would be the most... I don't know, generic definition or academic historical definition that you can think of. Um, and then you're more than welcome to kind of categorize, you know, these different camps as you've observed. Uh, I was just offering that as a way for us to kind of work with. But if you feel there's other categories that have different nuances, feel free to kind of identify that for us and then start walking us through, you know, the the pros and cons perhaps of, of each paradigm. Sure. Like. Well, I mean, with... Uh 
West, well, I say Western feminism because, you know, that is where the term originated, the term feminism originated in the West. Um, it has so many camps, so many iterations and so many divisions. Um, and one of the, you know, well-known facts about it is that feminists themselves don't really agree on what feminism means. Um, but the, I suppose the most generic definition that is often used um, and it's one that nobody could really disagree with, uh, is it's the, you know, the movement for the equal rights of men and women. And nobody's going to disagree with that because it's the most, you know, generic statement, almost a, a platitude, um, you know, that sentiment, nobody would disagree with that. Um, but beyond the very broad notion of, you know, quote unquote, not oppressing women, um, there's very little in common that, you know, Islam and feminism would have um, in their approach to dealing with that. Um, but, you know, throughout the throughout the ages, there have been, you know, several different waves of feminism. And to some extent, this has been defined by the broader political um, landscape. So, uh, you know, the first wave was all about in, in the West was all about, you know, gaining legal rights. Um, for example, you know, the right to vote um, the right to have property, these sorts of things. Um, you know, the second wave was more about, um, you know, equality in the workplace, um, you know, so. And, and to some extent, a little bit of that is still is still ongoing, uh, you know, um, the right to have the same jobs and the same sort of pay uh, as men. And there's all sorts of issues um, involved there. Um, and then the third wave is is, I suppose, defined more by postmodern um, thinking, you know, and this is where we end up in the very. Um, messy terrain of you know what does gender mean what does what does sexuality what does sex mean what is what are all these different aspects um how do they transpire you know um, and and now we are in a sort of a, a quagmire of, of it's like it's even more confused now to understand than it has ever been before and if at any time there has been a need for clarity, <laughs> for the clarity that Islam provides on the issue, um, it is particularly uh, now. So um, do you find it's problematic to use the term Islamic feminist? Like, are you an Islamic feminist, Zara? Would you identify as a feminist? Why or why not? <laughs> um, I would not. And I think the funniest thing is um, that I have in the past, because I speak about women's rights and, and women's issues, um, on one or two occasions, people describe me an Islamic, as an Islamic feminist. And that's despite the fact that, you know, a large part of my early work was purely critiquing feminism, which just shows how meaningless the term really is in its application. Um, the other issue, and, and it has come back to me now, um, was on uh, intersectional feminism. So uh, I guess the current iteration of feminism uh, is, you know, this idea that uh, a type of feminism that looks at issues of injustice by cutting across all possible uh, causes. So it looks at class, it looks at race, it looks at age, it looks at all these sorts of different issues. Um, but the problem with this is that it's effectively an admission uh, that feminism alone is inadequate. It needs all these other, uh, you know, approaches to really understand, to diagnose what's going on in society. Uh, but even then, uh, in its solutions, 
um, of which it, it doesn't have um, any agreed upon solutions. Again, because it doesn't have, you know, it doesn't have a text or a canon or a book to refer to like with Islam that we do. Um, with intersectional feminism, um, the most you could get out of it is, you know, a slightly more nuanced approach to diagnosing what's wrong with society. But even then, it's based on so many, um, you know, particular ide ideological presumptions um, that by the end of it, you still wouldn't have a, you know, a clear idea of what to do about, you know, about all sorts of situations about the, you know, the hypersexualization of women and men. Um, about, you know, poverty, about, uh, you know, all these environmental factors, about everything. It doesn't have the tools to actually provide a solution uh, to those issues. Right. Now, let me ask you this. If we were to, what were some of the, in your all of your debating and research and critiquing, what have you found have been the quote-unquote hard problems that certain, you know, Muslim feminists have critiqued Islam about that you can think of, and what were what were your responses to some of those critiques to help us understand a bit more about the dialogue? And maybe you can also share three critiques that you've had of feminism and how you've just deconstructed certain notions that is is found in this paradigm, uh, and tell us more about um, the practical aspect of you know why this even matters for us on a day to day and as certainly a Muslim community interacting with all of this. Sure. Um... So I guess uh, one of the main issues, um, rather than critiques, that comes out of uh, discussing or debating whether Islam or feminism is, you know, the the correct approach to women's rights, uh, is the fact that we don't actually have a present day model that we can point to to show the way that Islam is ought to be manifest uh, in society. Um, so, for example, um, we can speak all day about the Islamic, um, the God given, not the man given or the woman given or, or, you know, it wasn't human beings that thought of this, but the God given right, for example, for a woman to manage her own economic affairs um, and be provided for. Um, but at the end of the day, that depends on the duty that a male relative has um, to provide for her. But this ends up becoming a pipe dream in situations of poverty, which is manifest particularly in Muslim countries because of poverty or corruption. Um, uh, you know, there, there are many cases of um, men and even young boys that are going out in very you know perilous times to try to. Uh, and to provide for their families, you know, to provide for their brothers and sisters. Um, and in that situation, they're not trying to get money just to, you know, just to go off and, you know, on their own sort of eat, pray, love adventure. They're trying to fulfill their rights towards their family. Um, and so her right to be provided for Islamically depends on the economic situation um, in, in those societies. Um, another issue that comes out of this, the fact that we don't have a current um, example to point to, um, is, for example, the fact that, you know, Muslim women have the God-given right um, to obtain legal remedies in the event, for example, of divorce or marital discord or any sort of issue, um, you know, that she may face in terms of, of family law. Um, but again, this depends on the duty of those who are in authority um, to manage people's affairs justly. Um, and that, again, it becomes a pipe dream. It becomes impossible where there is the lack of an Islamic authority or, or courts um, to hear such complaints justly. Um, 
and you know again this is this is a problem because we can't point to a current day example um of this being practiced in the in the correct way and and i guess a third thing that comes out of this is you know the right the again the god given right um for men and women to to seek knowledge within means right so you know the woman's right to to for example go out and seek knowledge if she's able to it depends again on the duty of those who are more learned who are more learned to you know convey what they have learned uh, but again this becomes hazardous and impossible if you know the streets are filled with violence or war or people are too busy scraping together a living to have you know any time to really enhance themselves in that way so we can right. we can speak about all of these rights um but unfortunately you know we don't have a present day example to point to and what's really interesting and not just in debates on feminism but in debates on sharia, on um, on sharia um more generally. So um, perhaps you mentioned um, one of my debates that uh, I did with a colleague of mine um, a year or two ago um, on this house, the title, the motion was this house believes that uh, Islamic law is more just than English law. And my colleague and myself, you know, we were addressing an audience that was, you know, um, uh, sort of a very well-to-do uh, older generation uh, in the countryside um, in England. It was very sort of out in the sticks and, you know, people there were very um, uh, sort of, uh, I guess, of a different time. They were of a previous generation, you know, and we were expecting to, you know, we, we weren't expecting to win this debate because of, you know, the nature of, of, the, of the issue we were discussing. We were debating this against, you know, an English law judge and a barrister. And we were expecting for this to be an opportunity to merely talk about what, um, you know, to at least inform people of what Islam uh, proposes and what it offers. And subhanAllah, you know, the people were convinced to the extent that, you know, on, on vote account, we actually won um, the debate and the main panel and the only the only contention that came um you know from from this uh from this crowd was why isn't there an example that we can point to today why is the muslim world the way that it is today sorry so but you're asking about like an example today meaning like a nation like a society like well, there's no country we can point to and say oh there's the islamic you know worldview in in a modern context that's right, what you mean exactly and part of this is you know and you hinted at this earlier when you know you mentioned that and um, you know uh, along the lines of the fact that you know um, and, and what I mentioned that we are in a state of rehabilitation, you know, after a lot of, uh, you know, Muslim countries experiencing colonialism and effectively a very rich and sophisticated uh, history of jurisprudence, of ijtihad, of legal reasoning, of development, of refinement, um, you know, during and because of colonialism, you know, cut um, to an end, uh, to the to the point where you know our Islamic history ends up becoming something that we explore as archaeologists um, rather than as active, dynamic legal thinkers. We are in a state where we are kind of searching for nuggets of of how to live. Mm -hmm. But but sister Zara, I mean, th I mean, if I just threw that question back, right, like and said, okay, point to me right now where there is an ideal Jewish nation. 
or Catholic nation, or Protestant nation, or Buddhist, or Hindu, or socialist, or whatever. I mean, where are you going to point when it comes to all these other faiths or philosophies or worldviews? Like, I feel like w Muslims are often put in this defensive place of we have to have a perfect manifestation of our tradition or else we're always in the defensive. It's like, that's not... You know, that same question, if I said, where is there a, a nation that, you know, exemplifies all of the Christian, Judeo-Christian values, like from A to Z? I mean, it, do you think that's even a fair place to to even be put in, you know, uh, in the, in the yeah. first place? Do you get my question? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess the first thing to point out is that, you know, Islam doesn't promise, you know, a utopia by any means. Um, but... I don't think there is anyone that would describe any of the Muslim countries at the moment as representing, uh, you know, the way that Islam is supposed to be practiced um, overall. And I suppose, you know, one of my colleagues put it uh, um, very well when he said that Islam doesn't promise a utopia, but it promises an optopia. So it tries to calibrate uh, these different aspects of society such that they are at, uh, you know, optimum performance uh, you know not not perfection right. um but i suppose the difference between you know this question for muslims and this question for perhaps a different religious group is that you know christianity by way of one example um and even judaism to some extent they've had a, a different history in terms of their interaction in particular um with uh you know with uh, secularism uh, to the extent that, you know, it was a challenge to secularize Christianity, but it was secularized. And so the manifestation of Christianity is accepted as a norm as being different to, you know, what it perhaps was, you know, before that. Um, for Islam, uh, on the other hand, I suppose it's a harder nut to crack uh, because for us, uh, you know, these things can't be separated. And so in order to understand um, or to visualize uh, Islam, uh, it's important to remember that, you know, if you if you combine it, as for example, in Pakistan, by way of one example, um, you know, Pakistan is not, uh, it's a Muslim country, but, you know, it's not uh, in Islamic, legally in an Islamic country because it has you know it's mainly a secular system with a few aspects of islam woven through again perhaps partly as you know to some extent lip service um but you know there is a big difference between for example you know a muslim country that is um based on sharia and you know and and doing its best and it may not be perfect but it is you know it is it is it's not meant to be, it's doing its optimum. And there's a difference between that and a, a secular country, like, which is what we have generally today, um, you know, with where, you know, Muslims happen to live. Um, so I think it's a different question when we ask it of uh, the Christian community or the Jewish community or, you know, any others, it's a different question from what it is for Muslims, because for us, it is a, it is a holistic you know, practice Islam is it's spiritual. It's you know, it's, it's everything. You can't you can't be a secular Muslim, basically, right? It's an oxymoron. Right. It's, it's it doesn't work. So you can be a secular Christian or or Jew, or at least it's it's evolved to that extent. I mean, I've met people that identify with, let's say, the cultural facets of the religion, but not the theological or existential. But you're saying for Muslims, or at least the 
you know, um, the, the, the Muslims who perhaps understand the tradition, they see it as a very holistic thing. And you can't be a secular Muslim, right? It can't just be about the holidays necessarily right. like it is with some other communities. Is that your point? Well, yes. And, and the way to, I suppose, emphasize it is that, you know, Islam doesn't just have its own, you know, its own political view. It has its own economic system. It has its own, you know, in every aspect, it has a particular pattern. It has a balance between all of these things. Um, and just like some of the examples that, you know, that I mentioned, all of these things are interlinked. And if any of those aspects, if the economic aspect is out of whack, if, you know, the justice system is out of whack, if any of those things are are displaced or you know uh, you know not as they should be it leads to this discordance and that is when we end up with is with issues and situations such as you know muslim women's rights and being denied uh, right. uh yeah so hence it is this it is this bigger picture and i think this is um you know part of the the idea of you know it comes into this aspect of tawhid you know this this um this connection between things what i understood you say was uh, if the the tradition is not practiced, whether on an individual or communitarian societal level, holistically, then the principles that are hijacked along the way or not implemented surely will cause a ripple effect and cause oppression and injustice in all the other spheres of the human experience, whether it's gender, socioeconomic, etc. That's that's what you're saying. That's why it's not as right, simple. Exactly. So this is this is kind of you helping us understand why it's not that simple to just um, address certain questions or, or hard problems about you know women in Islam if we don't understand the total system that we are working through, which is the Islamic tradition, right? Um, and so it's not that simple to just go, well, the reason why you know women's inheritance is different from men is because um, that's the way it is, versus saying. If you have a uh, total socioeconomic uh, structure that is influenced and guided by Islamic principles, uh, at, at least as optimized as possible, then then it follows that you will have less oppression and injustice. Perhaps. Right, and and I suppose it might be helpful um, to emphasize some of the details of how that would work. So, you know. When it comes to inheritance, you know, um, it's often thrown at us. And perhaps this is an example of something that, you know, feminists uh, bring up against um, against Islam and that we often deal with. Um, you know, inheritance is one. Uh, witness testimony is another. And perhaps we would think of another one for a third. Um, when it comes to inheritance, it's often asked, you know, why do women receive less than, you know, less than their male counterparts? And it's interesting if you look at, um, first of all, if you look at the number of individuals that inherit um, upon, you know, the death of, of a particular individual, there are more women in that list. By way of just, you know, starting out, looking at this issue, there are more women in that list than there are men. So, you know, mothers, sisters, aunts, daughters, et cetera, et cetera. Um, moreover, the women inherit first, they inherit before the men, um, and they will tend to inherit those things which pertain to, you know, the stability of lifestyle. So things like, you know, the house, the car, you know, things which, you know, are needed for day to day life to continue, um, you know, without, uh, without, you know, without harm, without impediment, that sort of thing. And what the men would tend to inherit is the fluid money, the cash, the liquid money. Um, again, uh, this is because, 
of, you know, one of the rights which, you know, I mentioned earlier, which is that the women have the right to be provided for. And, you know, the liquid funds is obviously the easiest way for men to do that. So the additional amount that the that the men receive, it's not, again, for them to go off on a jolly, but rather it's for them to provide um, for, uh, for the women themselves. And, you know, one of the mistakes, and I suppose that is made, um, and this is perhaps a good example of looking at things through the wrong lens, is when we look at people and we value them in materialistic terms, um, we might be mistaken to think that Islam values women less because women get less inheritance. But of course, we don't value women or men by monetary amounts at all. Um, but rather, this is more to do with the practical, uh, the practicalities um, of of how these resources are distributed um, in society, uh, the amount that someone you know that someone would receive is not necessarily, well, it's not at all what they're worth, um, but rather it's you know it's just about the administration of those funds. It's about the administration of those resources, and what's interesting is because you know because of this advantage, um, the fact that women you know have the right to be provided for, um, historically uh, you know women have had a certain amount of disposable income. Uh, so if a woman wants to provide for her family, for example, um, and I'm sure you're aware of this, but for any of your listeners who are new to the issue, um, if a woman wants to provide for her family, she gets more reward uh, than her husband would um, because it's not her job to do so. And again, because it's not an obligation. It's a, it's a, it's a potential, but, but it's never an obligation. That's right. And not only that, but you know, with this additional income, this disposable income, you know, historically, uh, women, for example, in the um, during the Ottoman Caliphate, uh, women actually of all classes, so not just the upper class, but you know, working class, middle class, upper class. Women constituted about thirty percent of um, of the of the those who would donate and fund uh, public amenities like fountains, baths, schools, you know, soup kitchens, etc. Um, and so, you know, it it gives them that ability. So again, it's about channeling these resources in a way that benefits not just one person or two people or a family, but gives people. Uh, the ability it facilitates them to you know maximize the good that they can do in society um overall um and so yeah i mean we're often asked this question about inheritance as though you know oh i'm going to ask you this and it's going to really expose you but actually the islamic explanation the hikmah the wisdom behind it is actually so beautiful um and it makes sense in, in this broader context absolutely absolutely because as you said, you know, just to highlight the keys here, number one, according to Islamic law, men are under the obligation of providing for their families. Women are not in the same way. Um, and so men are expected to distribute that wealth uh, in a different fashion than uh, women distributing their wealth because women can keep their wealth to themselves if they want, but they also have that freedom to um, contribute to society or their family in ways that they want. And I'm hearing you say that if we didn't have that channel of distributing wealth through the female, um, I mean, maybe that's part of what helped our societies have that aestheticism, these other practical functions like wells or fountains, as, as you mentioned in the Ottoman uh, note here. And so, it, it, again, it's about kind of stepping back and seeing the holistic 
you know, harmonious uh, societal structure of how male and female will manifest different roles and powers um, with equity, bi'idhnillah. Right, exactly. Um, and, you know, it's not just, um, it's not to straightjacket women. Um, so this is, like, I suppose, another contention that comes in um, from the feminist perspective that, oh, um, Islam just wants women to, you know, quote unquote, just be mothers. Um, well, first of all, um, you know, Islam, you know, I suppose the contention is why do women have to value themselves in relation to men um, in Islam? And, you know, the first thing we will point out is that the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, actually addressed men and said, the best of you are those who are best to their women. So in Islam, even men are valued according to how they treat their women. Um, so, you know, we are we're not in this, men and women are essentially, you know, as the Quran states, allies to one another and our services for the sake of the creator. We're not servants to one another, but we serve, you know, one another for the creator. Um, and so, you know, this issue of, you know, a lot of these discussions tend to be very, uh, you know, focused on the individual and focused on, you know, what rights can one person get, again, to maximize that individual autonomy. Um, but because we are intertwined um, in our needs, in our, you know, in, in, in everything, um, we see that, you know, Islam views people in this way, that they are dependent on one another, um, and, you know, uh, it structures all sorts of um, aspects in society along those lines. Bismillah. So one of the other um, critiques that we often hear, um, either in these debates or, or just generally, uh, is the idea that, you know, Islam considers women um, to be lesser because, you know, for every, according to them, for every um, one for every single male witness, we need two female witnesses. Um, and of course, this is a, you know, a supreme uh, simplification and decontextualization of what's really going on. Um, you know, there are cases in Islam where you would need, for example, you know, four men for every one woman or two men for every one woman. Um, so, there is one, yeah, so, so for example, you know, there is the one scenario where um, and, and again, this relates to, you know, the economic sort of infrastructure of society. Because women were not obligated to be involved commercially, um, because they didn't have that as an obligation, uh, it was considered unfair to expect women um, to be conversant or to be familiar with commercial or economic affairs. And so only in issues of, you know, commercial and economic affairs, um, it was considered um, fair and, you know, a mercy that um, to sort of encourage the use of male witnesses, um, from my understanding. So for every one male witness, um, you either had another male witness or you had two female witnesses. And this was because, you know, women were not that were not, even if they were involved in the commercial and industrial fields, they weren't expected to be. So it was considered unfair to expect them to give testimony um, on such issues. Um, and so it allowed them to have, you know, a backup, you know, to have someone to give testimony along with you. Right. 
like supplemental support. Right, exactly. And, and similarly, if it was um, a case where it was more, um, you know, testimony was required, but the issue was more to do with issues to do with the women's domain, um, then you would need two male witnesses. You would need more male witnesses and you would only need one female witness. SubhanAllah. So it was reversed in other contexts based on the familiarity or exposure to that particular subject matter that we're bearing witness to. Right. And and another thing to note is that, you know, it's different in the case of, uh, for example, you know, a marital dispute. In a marital dispute, if a husband gives testimony against his wife and she gives testimony that counteracts his, they cancel one another out. You know, it's not because just merely because he's a man that his testimony takes precedence. Like specifically the fornication one, right? For instance. Right. So in, in that's that's um, actually a different example because in that you would need four male witnesses, right? If you think about it, um, for for against every you know one female witness, um, but even in a simple marital dispute, you know, a husband and wife, you know, they would cancel uh, they would cancel one another out. So it's not just because it's not to do with the gender, but rather it's to do with the particular issue. Um, and and the domain that it's involved, it's like an expert witness, you know, um, who is more likely to have expertise on a certain issue. Um, so again, you know, that's something that we can easily deal with in these discussions. Um, but it's it's really about going to you know to understanding uh, what the what the wisdom is behind this, and part of that involves you know a, a bit of a historical uh, exploration into the into the landscape. Um, of the time, how things worked, how things worked now, and reviving the ability to, you know, um, uh, to explore these issues uh, in relation to today's matters. And so, you know, a lot of these, um, there are a lot of Islamic opinions, a lot of Islamic policies, um, a lot of, you know, uh, Islamic rulings uh, that are you know, relevant for, you know, situations that we still have today. But we also have some new questions, some new situations for which we require, you know, further ishtahad by qualified individuals. And so that I, I guess, uh, yeah, that um, I suppose leads us to um, one of the issues, you know, that we already discussed, you know, about the tradition sort of being a little bit dormant at the moment, um, but but requiring um, a bit of a, you know, a, a jump start again. Right, right. Now, how about when we now look um, towards feminism and some of the, mm -hmm. let's say, central constructs or principles that you have found um, problematic or may actually end up taking away more than it gives back to society, right? Because we always want to think about how men and women will be functioning together because as long as we're a human species, both of us are going to be around, right? So we, we, we really got to think about how it all, it impacts everybody. And I know that in your work and your videos and articles, you, you tend to always try to make sure we see this bigger picture um, rather than focus on a particular pixel of, of the picture. Can you tell us more about some of the central ideas or constructs that may manifest through feminism in an unhealthy or perhaps harmful way? Absolutely. So, um, you know, another reason why this is important is because we can see some of the ill effects of, um, and which I'm going to talk about, but we can see some of the outcomes of this 
uh, when we realize that there are now counter groups to feminism um, in Western society. So you have, for example, um, men's rights activists and you have extremer versions of that, of, you know, under the acronym uh, MGTOW, M-G-T-O-W, men going the other way. And it's the phenomenon of men deciding that, you know, they actually don't want anything to do with women. So whereas we understand that men and women need each other in order, you know, for the human race to survive, uh, there are some men who have decided that, you know, to the extent possible, they don't want anything to do with women. And this is sort of, you know, this pendulum swinging rather wildly, um, uh, you know, in uh, in in Western society, and and it thinks it's redressing some of the injustices, uh, but actually what it's doing is it's just creating the same uh, injustice, but in in reverse. Um, so I suppose um, uh, you know a few examples of this. Uh, you know the idea that people, and I suppose this ties in a little bit with what I was saying about feminism and women's rights not being synonymous. Um, but similarly, feminism and justice um, are not synonymous um, either. So there is, I suppose, this idea, one of the core tenets of, uh, of feminism, um, which is, you know, the idea that women have traditionally been um, dehumanized by a male-dominated society. And, you know, they would call this idea um, the patriarchy. So it's a term that many of us come across. Um, and, you know, essentially the idea of patriarchy as used by feminists is the almost conspiratorial um, uh, idea that it's always been better um, to be a man. And it sort of snubs many of the privileges that, you know, women have have, have enjoyed um, simply for being women. Um and I suppose I spoke about um, some of these things, uh, you know, very early on in my work. And it might be helpful to mention a few of those uh, again now. Often it's it's presumed that, you know, men have had it better in society um, in terms of, you know, legal, economic, everything. You know, it just presumes that and men have had it better at the expense of women. Um but actually, if we look at society, at society, at, you know, um, at the really basic level, we can see that uh, women have actually had an intrinsic worth uh, instituted in society, regardless of, of what she does. Um, and part of the reason for this, and it's been noted by, you know, a lot of different, um, uh, you know, sociologists and different thinkers, is that because it only takes uh one man, and this is in terms of, you know, uh, survival of the human race, I suppose, it only takes one man um, for many women uh, to have uh, children. Um, and because of this, it's given rise to the idea that men are largely disposable, whilst every woman is indispensable. And this is this is the idea of, of um, the quote unquote disposable male. This is, it's, it's quite a, com it's quite a complex idea generally. Um, and it leads to questions of, you know, why we send men readily off into war, why we prepare them from a young age uh, to be willing to do that, to sacrifice themselves. But with women, um, we prioritize the safety and comfort. Um, uh, and, you know, for example, why women are rescued first in, you know, the lifeboat scenario. Um, and, you know, why women are generally protected from roles such as, you know, being uh, you know, firefighters or, you know, coal miners or these sorts of dangerous jobs. 
And the point of, of bringing this up is merely so that we can actually question the narrative, so that we can question the premises that often feminism brings to the table and, and we don't really question it. You know, another example of this is the issue of um, domestic abuse and domestic violence. And it's something that we always imagine is only one-sided. We imagine that domestic violence is only about men um, being violent uh, toward uh, women. In reality, and, and people are, are learning this more and more and becoming more savvy to this, there are actually incredibly high rates of um, women also being violent towards their male partners. Um, there are incredibly high rates of violence between same-sex couples with, you know, alarming uh, rates of violence, particularly in, in lesbian couples. Um, so the idea of, you know, domestic violence, for example, being a feminist issue is a disservice to people who have experienced this and their perpetrator happened to not be male because they are either not taken seriously or they are sidelined and they are made a mockery of. You know, there are many examples of, of men, for example, who, you know, their their female partners, um, you know, men generally have have better physical strength, but that doesn't mean that, you know, women can't find ways to hurt them. So there's examples of women, for example, putting crushed up glass into, you know, into their husband's food or, you know, attacking them with blades and things like that. And, you know, because of this idea that, you know, domestic violence only happens to women at the hands of men, um, you know, male victims are often, if they do call uh, the police, they're more likely to be themselves arrested and taken away uh, than receive um, uh, sort of redress for you know some of the issues for for the for the the crimes against them. Now, this is not to say that you know it's not a numbers game uh, by any means. It's not the fact that you know oh it happens more to one than the other or it happens equally to both of them. The fact is there is a situation where there is serious discordances. There is the serious increase of violence, you know, in the home, you know, in the place that's supposed to be people's sanctuary. What is the reason for this? And why are we, uh, you know, are, you know, movements like, you know, feminism hijacking these issues as if they are only uh, things that men are doing to women? And the reason for that is to sort of underpin this idea of patriarchy, that women have always been hard done by at the hands of men. And, the problem with this is that it, it doesn't lead us to um, a, a just outcome. What happens is that we end up applying solutions like feminists have done so, whereby one side eventually ends up um, embittered. You know, the men are now embittered because they are now not being taken seriously or they are now being, you know, hard done by and they're not being, you know, um, they're not finding redress for their issues. So this pendulum is swinging, you know, in the opposite direction now. And it's it, this is far from the balance um, that Islam uh, establishes. It, that Islam establishes a way for us to redress these issues without residual rancor, you know, it, because it gives us a very precise model with which to do that. Um, you know, there are, there are many other... Uh, it, uh, examples uh, of that. Um, but, you know, the second issue uh, is that, you know, feminism itself, it doesn't have clear solutions. And it often 
evades many of the you know of the issues that that are that we are facing um you know we mentioned this earlier it exists in so many different factions you know conservative liberal socialist postmodernism uh, postmodern uh, ecofeminist intersectional feminist they don't actually have a shared uh, value system or a core um you know moral guidance from which to draw uh, perhaps the only thing you know that they do have in common um, is the name, uh, you know, and they will happily contradict not just one another, but even themselves um, where they need to. So, you know, there's one example where, you know, a while ago, um, they there was a feminist campaign on a very prominent um, UK uh, feminist uh, society's uh, website. Um, and it was uh, recommended in a report by Baroness Corston, uh, um, who is, you know, a leading legal figure uh, here. And this campaign was to uh, close the inequality gap between men, men and women by campaigning that female prisons um, should be closed down, not male prisons, but just female prisons, because they didn't suit because they didn't suit, um, you know, women's needs. Um, now, just to interject here, for, you know, from an Islamic perspective, um, we, you know, Islam, from, you know, what we can see, doesn't advocate uh, prisons for either men or women. Um, this is why it has alternative forms of, of dealing um, with certain issues, uh, because prison is seen as unjust in the sense that you deny an entire family of their of their family member because of something that that person did, you deny them of their you know their obligations towards society. Um, so we don't see it as conducive to any person's needs, um, their biological or otherwise. But in this particular campaign, um, you know, although feminists will often talk about the fact that women should not be judged by their biology, by their hormones or by any of these things, um, they actually argued in this report um, that uh, women's prisons should be closed and they should be replaced um, with what effectively ends up being uh, women's social clubs, uh, where women, uh, where female offenders, you know, during the day, they'll go to these centres, they'll spend time with each other. Um, part of that involves, you know, quote unquote, you know, organising their own shopping budgets and cooking, which is something that every human being does anyway. It doesn't really sound like much of a punishment. <laughs> and then at the end of the day, they get to go home to their children. But from their perspective, um, men didn't need to go home to their children. They, their children apparently didn't need them. So the report, for example, I happen to have to hand and um, one of the things that it said, it said um, women and men are different. Equal treatment of men and women does not result in equal outcomes. Um, and it went on to claim that women and here's the here's the the real kicker in this um women are governed by hormones and a monthly cycle which affects their moods and emotions and these biological factors have a direct bearing on the way in which women experience stressful events during their lives now if a man were to say the same thing about treating women differently based on their hormones and you know monthly cycle there would be absolute you know uproar um but you know, here we see an example of, you know, because feminists don't have 
a framework for understanding uh, human nature and the human condition, they're happy to completely contradict themselves and say, okay, in this scenario, women are governed by these biological factors if it means obtaining these privileges. And I suppose uh, one more example of that, of that, you know, lack of clarity and that lack of having, you know, that moral guidance and that shared system um, is with regards to, you know, the hypersexualization of society. And this is not something that just um, women are experiencing, but we we see it, we witness it more and more with, with men as well, where people are encouraged to value themselves based on how they look. You know, there are many studies done where, uh, you know, young women uh, in the UK and the US, um, you know, school and teenage, uh, you know, and, and, you know, early, early 20s, um, a lot of these women express sentiments like they didn't want to leave the house um, to go to school or to go to the doctor or to go to college or to go to whatever place they needed to go to based on how uh, they looked because they felt that they didn't look good enough um, for society. Um, and, you know, there are others where a lot of these young women would uh, and, and continue uh, to believe genuinely that society would value them more based on, on how they look. So the better they look, the better society society will value them. So this objectification um, of, of women and, and increasingly men, feminists don't know how to deal with this. So you have some groups that, you know, advocate uh, androgenizing the female appearance. Um, there are others who may campaign for, you know, safer cosmetic surgery, but they won't actually challenge why women feel compelled um, to have that cosmetic surgery done in the first place. Um, and there's all these different, uh, you know, voices about how to deal with something that, again, Islam has a very clear approach to this. So, you know, according to Islam, no person should be, you know, judged by their appearance. And this is why we try to minimize um, this sort of uh, the this uh, sexual tension and competitiveness in society by, you know, for both men and women having, uh, you know, firstly, a particular a formula for how we dress. Uh, and secondly, for having a particular formula for how we interact with each other um, to the um, to the extent that it ends up being something that's a very professional interaction, you know, in public life. Um, and, you know, from the perspective of feminism, it can't actually deal with these complexities and particularly you know when it advocates something like individualism and this sort of um you know this sexual freedom and empowerment but at the same time it's then dealing with the product of that and the product of that is the hypersexualization of society it is sort of the open and free market where men and women may approach each other you know without hesitation um, and often, you know, you know, unwanted or, or wanted, whatever it may be. Um, a lot of this is a result of this empowerment and this, um, you know, this individualistic, uh, you know, autonomy of, of sexuality that has been promoted by by feminism. Um, then we are now dealing with the repercussions of it. And feminists are now having to backtrack and undo and, you know, and readdress some of these issues. Um and so rather than getting into that game of trial and error, uh, particularly for Muslims, where we have a very clear a guideline of, you know, and there's a hikmah, there's a wisdom behind all of the, you know, the prescriptions um, 
that Islam provides on these issues. Sometimes we, particularly for, for younger Muslims, uh, you know, get into the, uh, the, the sentiment or the mindset that Islam is, is merely prohibiting things for the sake of it. And it's never doing that. Um, and it's only when we look at how these things play out in society that we see why um, Islam's approach, for example, to, you know, to hijab or to, you know, division of labor or to or all of these things, why it is the way that it is. Um, and this is part of the, the rehabilitation that we need to do um, in amongst ourselves about developing this, this collective awareness, developing this acceptance or this realization that Islam has a different, as you said, a different paradigm um, that we need to, to view the situation through. No, I, I really appreciate that summary. I mean, as someone in the field of Islamic psychology, I mean, similarly, you have, um, uh, you know, the same kind of challenge or tension, right? You have a paradigm of psychology that's rooted in specific philosophical ideas about what it means to be human, what's healthy, what's unhealthy. And that doesn't always align with an Islamic worldview of what it means to be human and what's healthy. So similarly, you know, I'm hearing you say that the paradigm has a lot to do with our conclusions, our mechanisms, and the values that we believe are true. And if we don't, as Muslims, rehabilitate or, you know, seek more of that knowledge, explore, as you said, then it's going to be very difficult for us to really understand why there are some of these premises in our religion and whatever's happening in modern society may become a lot more appealing or convincing, perhaps. We've had a sort of very preliminary discussion on the issue today. Um, it's such a detailed discussion and there's so many directions that we can uh, look at this in. Um, and I suppose this is sort of a primer on the on the discussion generally. Um, before the closing statement, I do, I do want to add something about... Um, the idea that, that sometimes people get that Islam straitjackets uh, women into a particular role um, because we talked a little bit about the fact that women are not obligated to provide. Um, so people do end up thinking that Islam um, asks women to only be, um, you know, homemakers or mothers. Um, and again, this is to do with the paradigm generally that we are looking at the issue through. Um, from, from the perspective of Islam, you know, women can take whatever role you know that they you know they seek they can you know they can um be whatever they can they can seek uh you know economic prosperity they can become you know um islamic uh, scholars they can they can do whatever the only thing that matters is for whose sake you are doing these things. The idea is that sometimes it is presumed that if someone is of a particular role, um, that they are inherently less or more than someone who is in another role. Um, but Islam doesn't look at it in the sense of necessarily what you are doing alone, but the, you know, the virtue and how well you execute your duty, you know, how you discharge your duty. So, for example, you know, uh, a ruler, a male ruler inherently doesn't have any more, um, you know, uh, credit or value, you know, than someone who is a mother. Rather, it's how we fulfill those responsibilities and how we fulfill uh, those duties. Um, and so that's just something that that is important to flag um, that in Islam, it's not, you know, some women either, you know, they, they can't have uh, children and or they don't want to. Um, and 
Islam tries to accommodate for the general rule. It tries to accommodate for the fact that most women at some point in their lives will go through, you know, uh, becoming a mother um, and raising a family. And so a lot of the legal uh, provisions, a lot of the, the social expectations are geared around that. Um, but there are always exceptions to that. And there are always, you know, uh, women um, and even men who go, you know, against the general rule. But, you know, the exceptions tend to resolve themselves. And, you know, they don't have intrinsically a lesser worth than than anybody else. It's about what we do um, with whatever advantage we're given in society. Um, and just to tie this into the earlier discussion that we had about, you know, inheritance, um, where men, for example, um, are given any advantage or where women are given any advantage, uh, they are given a greater accountability as well. So um, where men do receive more inheritance, they are going to be all the more accountable for what they do with that, um, not just uh, here, um, you know, in the eyes of a court, but also, you know, in the court of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they will be more accountable for any advantage um, that they have. Um in terms of advice that I would give for um, any Muslim women that might find themselves to be enamored by by feminism today, uh, in the sense that sometimes a lot of sisters, as we mentioned earlier, might gravitate towards the movement or the language or the sentiment because it is popular, because it, it has that social currency, because it may seem, you know, appealing or, you know, uh, it may seem, you know, the thing to do, right? Um, my advice would be that we should be promoting the language and the terms and the sentiments of being a Muslim instead, particularly in these times where being a Muslim is something that is often, um, you know, uh, darkened and criticized and seen as something, you know, um, negative in society. Um, we should be reclaiming, you know, the terms and the language uh, of Islam. And where something is wrong, where women's rights are being denied, rather than saying, you know, as a feminist, X, Y, and Z, this is wrong, rather than saying that, it has more potency and more power for us to say and to call it out as un-Islamic. Because by doing so, we are immediately pointing, one, to our rubric that we are using, to the fact that we are using Islam as our lens, first of all. Um, and secondly, we are pointing to the fact, not that it's wrong by any other standard, we are pointing to the fact that it's wrong by the standards of, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and nothing is, is worse than that. Um, and we are also pointing to the fact that the solution that we want is, um, you know, for Islam to be uh, applied correctly. Um, so I think it is it is it is far more powerful, and I think the people who are who we are appealing to, whether that is you know those who manage you know Islamic courts at the moment, whether it are whether it is the the councils of the masajid, whether it is our male family relatives, or whether it is males in the community, um, it has much more currency if we simply use the language of the religion that they themselves have have subscribed to. If we use the language of Islam. Um, and in a way, this will enable us to be, you know, hacktivists, <laughs> activists for the haq, right? Um, rather than, you know, merely, you know, um, borrowing ideas 
um, and you know getting people's backs up and driving them away. We essentially want to work with with these men. We want these men and these women um, to work together. We want to reach this 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 state of being allies of one another. But we're not going to do that if we are deliberately using language which is not well received and which has so much of this baggage and which has very much. Um, I, I dare to say, which has very much failed the West. Um, why are we then trying to adopt that into our own worldview? Subhanallah. Sister Zara Ferris, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. And this will be, inshallah, hopefully just a primer. Uh, and we will definitely have you on again soon to discuss more topics on women and Islam and feminism. Inshallah. Jazakallah khair. Thank you so much for having me. Kareem Sirajuddin here. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit nurhuman.com to learn more about how I provide personal, spiritual, and relationship counsel. Please generously help sponsor the show to keep on going at patreon.com slash coffeewithkareem. That's patreon.com slash coffeewithkareem.